Hi, it's Hal Anderson. Thanks for checking out the daily podcast for my show, Connecting Winnipeg. And if you can, please listen live weekdays from 10 to noon on 680 CJOB. Good morning. Well, it is another busy day in Winnipeg and Manitoba. Kevin Cheveldayoff and Mark Chipman of the Winnipeg Jets now won't speak until at least 4 o'clock this afternoon. We'll talk about it here on the show, on the show today, though. Premier-designate Heather Stephenson will be sworn in at 2, her first news conference set for 3 o'clock this afternoon. Now, unless, of course, Shelley Glover and her lawyer are successful with their legal challenge to force a new vote, but time is quickly running out for that. But we begin with what is happening, not what's coming up later on. Faculty at the University of Manitoba are on strike this morning. University of Manitoba Faculty Association President Orvi Dingwall. We sure wish that we were not in this position. Uh, we've been negotiating with the university's administration since August um, to try to um, make up for some lost wages that we've encountered over the last five years after the wage freeze legislation. Um, we've been working really hard with the administration to try to reach a reasonable salary offer. Um, but there is a mandate from the government to continue to interfere with our bargaining and to continue to limit our wages. And the result of that is that it is impacting our ability to recruit and retain faculty members at the University of Manitoba. And that is, um, in our members' opinion, worth defending because our working conditions are the learning conditions for students and quality of education matters um, incredibly. Uh, it, it matters so much to us. Um, so this strike is about protecting the integrity of the university, fighting for quality education, um, and also uh, protecting the independence of the university from the government. Head of the union, Orvi Dingwall, president of the University of Manitoba, Michael Benarosh. I think what we've done in the offer that we made to um, the faculty is that we we restructured the, contra- the the salary scale so that we could attract faculty and we could retain them. What we what we really haven't seen to do enough of, for at least from Amfa's perspective, is put enough new money on the table to raise current salaries to a level that will be competitive. That's going to take some time to do. I think what we've done is moved it closer to to current salaries being competitive, but also adjusted the structure so when we go and offer a new faculty member now a contract, we can make a much more competitive offer. And one more clip here from President Benarash, because he boils it down, this is the bottom line right here. It's not a good day for students, and, um, and we, you know, we have to find a way to get back to the table and to solve um, this uh, contract dispute and, and to explain a little better to each other what we need and find find a better way forward so that um, students can be, get back to class. They just want to finish. This has been going on too long um, at the University of Manitoba, and, and we really we, we have to do better. Um, we have to do better for our students. And joining us live now on the phone, the president of the University of Manitoba Students Union, Brendan Scott. Brendan, good morning. Good morning. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Hal. 
Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, what's the impact been so far with picket lines and the strike just underway on students? Uh, as of this morning, it maybe takes you an extra five minutes to get into the university with uh, all university entrances being uh, picketed. Uh, the University of Manitoba Faculty Association is handing out pamphlets, giving information on the strike. And uh, overall, we've just had an outpouring of students messaging me and the, our service center asking for more information and uh, really wanting to know what's going on uh, with this strike. Um, I will say, though, information has been plentiful. The, we saw this coming in the sense that we are aware of the bargaining deadline being October 31st and the strike deadline being today, November 2nd. Uh, so we've been communicating with our students throughout the month of October, letting them know that this was a very real, real possibility and that we're just hoping that it's a strike that doesn't last too long and that the administration and the faculty association can come to a new agreement. Hey, Brendan, I want you to react to a text message that I just got from a student, okay? One of the students at the University of Manitoba, Archie. Archie says this at 204-780-6868. Hal, I'm a fifth-year student finishing off my professional degree. This is my second strike in five years. Shame on the faculty for not getting it done. Shame on administration for not getting it done. Shame on my professors for blocking all chorus material on e-learning. What's the message for future students? Don't come here. We can't get along. Absolutely. And you know what? This is my second official strike, and this is the third instance of doing something like this as this, there was a strike threat last year. Overall, this, has, this on top of tuition increasing and international students not being on Manitoba's financial health care system anymore has just overall made the University of Manitoba a not very attractive place to come and learn. Uh, I think this falls, yes, on the professors and the administration, but as Orvi mentioned there in her little clip, that the the government plays a part in these bargaining, and um, you know it's on the provincial government to really make Manitoba an attractive place for not only students but just future generations. And with them interfering with the bargaining, they're kind of tying the hands of the university. Um, so very much supports Umpa's desire to be paid better as they are some of the lowest paid professors in the U15. But we also have to recognize that the university is struggling with a provincial mandate. Um, and this falls, so it falls on both parties. Um, when it comes to students, it's very much a mixed bag. Uh, just You'll hear just as many people be mad at the administration as they are at the professors. Um, and overall, uh, every student needs to formulate their own opinion based on all the information that is given. And uh, that's what UMSU's role in all of this is, is providing students with the facts so that they are able to formulate their own opinions. Um, I also want to be known that not every professor here at the University of Manitoba is a part of UMFA, and there are still some classes that will continue. And again, a mixed bag of some students who have all their classes on pause, half and half, or they are fully continue on as if nothing's happening due to none of the professors being part of UMFA. Mm -hmm. Is that true what Archie said in that text message, that professors, or at least some of them, are blocking course material on e-learning? Absolutely, yes. It was actually stated from UMFA to all UMFA members that they, the first thing that they should do is to remove course materials off UMLearn, UMLearn being our website where we uh, have all our classes and course materials. This is something that was done in 2016 and using, I guess, the expertise that I had have being a part of that strike. We communicate to our students all through the month of October with the advice of a, download all course materials, and B, talk to your individual professors on how the strike is going to affect you, whether that's going to be 
they are going on strike or they're not, and if exams are going to be um, delayed. But overall, yes, uh, I, many students uh, are inquiring right now, asking why the course materials have been taken down. But we very much foresaw this, and it was communicated to all our undergraduate students that that is something they should have been doing, is downloading course materials due to uh, the professors most likely, and now, of course, confirming that they would be taking down course materials. As you mentioned, the gov- there is a you know the role uh, the government plays a role here. Heather Stephenson will uh, take questions from reporters at three o'clock this afternoon, and I imagine she's going to be asked about this situation. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Brendan. Here, uh, our Tristan Field Jones, one of our global news reporters, yesterday on live at five with Richard Clucci and Julie Buckingham had a report, and in his report he said this, and I, w- I want to get your reaction. Listen. When it comes to salaries, data from Stats Canada show a professor at the U of M typically makes nearly $137,000 annually. That's almost 20 grand less than the University of Saskatchewan's average pay, but it's also not far from the world-renowned McGill University in Montreal, only about seven grand lower. Now, some people are going to hear, and I'm all for making what you're worth, right? But some people are going to hear that University of Manitoba profs are making, on average, 137, 138 grand, only seven grand less than McGill. Um, and timing is ev- my dad used to say, "How timing is everything." Is this the right time for this battle? And a lot of people will hear that wage and go, what the hell? Yeah, I will be completely honest. Um, again, as I mentioned in this interview, it is up to individual students to find all the facts and formulate their own opinions. I am under the, the opinion that um, this is somewhat long overdue. I know with COVID, this feels like not the best time to strike, but that's the opinion they had last year when we they threatened to strike last year and they took a one-year agreement that wasn't beneficial to them to avoid having to strike during the worst of the COVID times. They have been wanting a new deal for about six years now. That 2016 strike did not resolve things properly. And then there was the provincial government putting a wage freeze on things. So um, you can look at many different stats when it comes to pay in different universities. It is a matter of fact, though, that out of all U15 schools, uh, UMFA members are paid, or the University of Manitoba professors are paid some of the lowest. Um, again, though, it's not up to me to decide. It's up to the students to think, is it a matter of them being the lowest paying in the U15 or is it a matter of they are compensated very fairly when compared to other salaries just in any job? Um, but overall, UMSU's role in this is to just inform students on everything. And while we've taken a side with UMSA in terms of we, we very much recognize the needs for them to have higher pay, we want to support anything that ends the strike and gets us back in the classroom as fast as possible. Brendan, thanks a lot. I hope it ends quickly. Me too. <laughs> Thank you. Brendan, Brendan Scott is the president of the University of Manitoba Students Union. And it's a tragedy because people do not need uh, to be getting this sick. Uh, people do not need to be losing their loved ones uh, to this uh, virus. For the most part, it is uh, unquestioning that the vaccine saves lives. Epidemiologist Cynthia Carr on the news yesterday afternoon with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. Uh, Cynthia, of course, one of the voices that we have been using a lot over the past year and a half from Epi Research. Um, I don't know as though, I guess maybe I've heard her more frustrated one other time. Uh, but she was frustrated, definitely frustrated with the unvaccinated. Jason Kidderchuk is joining us now on the phone. Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Jason, good morning. 
Good morning, Hal. Not sure if you heard that yesterday. I hope I hope to get time later on to play a couple of longer clips. Um, but it really, uh, it must be frustrating for you. It certainly seems to be for Cynthia, and I I it, I find it frustrating too, uh, as somebody who's fully vaccinated and and believes that that's the way out of this. If there is a way out of this to have uh, some people out there and more in some parts of the province than others uh, not getting vaccinated. I mean, uh, people in hosp- getting sick in hospitals, dying, it, it, these are unnecessary, as Cynthia just pointed out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I, you know, certainly I share uh, her frustration with this. I, I listened to, to uh, that, that piece yesterday. Um, listen, the, the thing we have to remember is that we've gone from this being a newly emerging virus to now a true vaccine-preventable disease. Um, so we, we have to be able to, at some point, appreciate that what we're seeing in regards to, to severe illnesses and, and case numbers, that we can actually alleviate uh, the vast majority of that by simply getting vaccinated, uh, as we do for, for other common illnesses. So I think we're at a point, unfortunately, that listen, the, the data, the, the science, the, the anecdotal evidence, the reality, all that has painted the, the picture that, that, that we see today, which is vaccines work. Now it, it's really coming down to, to people that have close connections uh, to, to loved ones that, that are still vaccine hesitant or vaccine reluctant to try and have those personal conversations because I, I don't think we are going to be able to reach them. Well, and, what, and that's where I want to take this today. Um, you, you have spoken out in the past when you felt more measures needed to be in place. Uh, Cynthia, uh, at one point yesterday, said, I, I don't know what more we do. What more do we do? What do we do? When we talk to Dr. Rusin, you know, nothing's off the table, right? But, I mean, there is more we can do in parts of, like, the South. I don't like picking on the South because we're seeing, you know, some of it in the North as well, and there are people everywhere that are hesitant and reluctant to get vaccinated. But um, what do we do? What is the next step? Is there a next step? I, I don't know if there is, right? So, listen, certainly the, the ability to vaccinate kids is going to be one part of this because that still represents an area that we don't have any, any coverage of right now in regards to vaccination or any ability. So that, that's going to help. Um, you know, in regards to other you know, additional measures that we can take, a lot of this is also about enforcement and the ability to enforce. So, you know, measures certainly do help. The, the vaccine passports, the vaccine mandates, those things have helped. Um, now when we get down to other restrictions and, and ability of testing and, and uh, ease of testing, those things come down to whether or not you have the actual personnel to be able to uh, to, to bring these things to fruition. And, and that's a much greater question. And again, this is why I go back to this idea a lot of the messaging now, I think, frankly, has to come from within the communities um, because we've been saying the same things over and over again for, for months now. And if we haven't reached uh, those folks or that contingent of the population, we can't stop trying. But certainly, I don't think we're going to see a miracle in, in the, the weeks or, or the uh, coming few months. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I think you're right about that. And and so what have we learned? Maybe nothing will change this time, but we know there are going to be more pandemics. It might be another hundred years. Let's hope. Let's hope it's even longer than that. But what have we learned about the, me- here's what I think, Jason, and you tell me if you, you agree or not. 
I think early on, because we didn't know what we were dealing with, the messaging, uh, the messaging did change, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were suspicious about that. Well, you said we didn't need to wear a mask, and now you want us to wear a mask. And so that's how these, you know, conspiracy theories began. Uh, why are they changing their tune on that? And that's where the disbelief and the and the mistrust came in. Uh, so what do we do next time? How, how do we, because I think it is all about messaging. Yeah, no, it's a great question, right? So, you know, part of this is is certainly, the, first of all, the, the uh, part of the equation, which is, this was a coronavirus, which was certainly different from influenza. And that's really what we had been basing the majority of our pandemic response on. So we were dealing with a different bug that we thought behaved in a specific way because of our past experiences. And frankly, it was different. We, we learned things very, very quickly. But once the messaging took off, it was tough to try and, and change that. I think we certainly have to be appreciative that that preparedness is important, this idea of being able to, uh, you know, just kind of put together uh, or cobble together a plan at the last second. We can't do that. We have to have sustainable uh, preparedness. And certainly, we've got to be on key with, with our messaging across, uh, you know, different uh, different researchers and different biomedical and, and health professionals and, and government officials. We've got to be able to give out cogent messaging that the public actually understands and they feel speaks to them as opposed to speaking above them or around them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just got a text message uh, uh, from somebody here. Uh, Hal, where do you go from here? You stop. All you, uh, all who want the vaccine have received it. Leave the rest of us a bad word alone. But here's the problem with that. You know, as I look at yesterday's number, we've got hospitalizations at almost 100 now, 98, 25 people in ICU. The problem is that as we get more cases where people end up in hospital and then in intensive care, we've been down this road before. We know how horrible that is, and that really does impact everybody. It, it does, right? I think, you know, Dr. Dan Roberts and, and others spoke about this last week. Uh, in, in a free press article, and we've certainly seen other people throughout the pandemic that have talked about the, un, you know, the instability of healthcare systems. And certainly when you stretch healthcare systems, what that means in regards to not only the, the bug or the disease that you are trying to battle, but everything else in regards to communicable and non-communicable diseases. So we have to appreciate that even though the waves have seceded and, and you know, throughout the pandemic, we've not gotten back down to a baseline, which means any additional cases push healthcare systems to the limit. And that means a lack of care and access for everybody, not just for COVID patients. And, and that's where we, we have to really get that message out that this does not just impact people with COVID. This impacts everybody that's seeking uh, the, those hospital beds or those appointments. How soon do you think we might see kids 5 to 11 in Canada being vaccinated? We're, we're certainly seeing it getting close in the U.S., and typically we follow them. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but likely uh, it will. When do you think we might see it here? Very soon. So ACIP is meeting today for CDC. So if, they, if the ACIP committee approves it, CDC could literally have the approval out today and, and actually be ready to start vaccinating kids. Um, for Health Canada, I actually think it's going to be probably in the next few weeks. Uh, certainly based off what we saw with the, the 12 to 17 year olds for Pfizer, um, you know, it really was a, a quick turnaround. I think we want to ensure that there's good, you know, certainly good transparency on the data, that health Canada officials have the ability to look through the information and, and figure out where if there are any concerns or any you know, blips in the radar that they are, are needing to focus on. Um, but we also want to see the vaccine get out. Jason, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks, Al. 
I've been sort of cryptic this morning because I really wanted to save it uh, and get as many of you to listen now as possible. Ray Dubois is a neighbor of mine here. I'm my home studio in South Winnipeg where I'm doing the show and have been since March of 2020. Uh, Ray Dubois is a neighbor at Ron Paul Garden Center just up the road, and I saw a small little note yesterday after my show online I was reading, and it said something about a Christmas tree shortage. And I thought they meant artificial Christmas trees because of the supply uh, chain issues, but they they meant real Christmas trees. And so I phoned Ray, because for years now, several years, Jackie and I are into real Christmas trees, and we get our tree from Ray. Ray, come on in here. Uh, good morning, first of all. Good morning, Hal. How are you today? Excellent. So it's true, and this is quite a story. And, and this dates as far back as 2008, 2009? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... Basically, what happened right around then that the, that recession, um, a lot of a lot of farms backed off on uh, planting, and so that uh, that coupled with some farms just shutting down and and uh, transition, you know, older owners and and the kids not wanting to to uh, continue on had a bit of a ripple effect, and that we're feeling now. Um, but yeah, it's it is North America wide. Uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to get trees in some in some respects. Because it takes a dozen or even more years uh, to grow a nice Christmas tree, right? So that's why that matters, 2008, 2009. And then I guess earlier this year you realized, oh boy, we're, we're, you talked to some of your suppliers and you realized, man, we're going to have a problem. So when did you first get wind that there might be an issue with real Christmas trees? Well, we 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 go direct to uh, to to source, so we go direct to our farms. We have enough critical mass that we can go directly to the farms. And um, last Christmas, I had wasn't super thrilled with the service that I got from our provider, so I started snooping around looking for a different provider. And then I got um, a letter in early May from our supplier who said they could not supply us with trees this year, us and another greenhouse. Uh, who said they basically they said to both of us we can't supply those trees. So that's when I found out. So then I got on the on the phone. Now I had made a com uh, a relationship with um, a greenhouse or sorry a, a Christmas tree supplier in Quebec uh, in December of last year. And if I hadn't made that relationship, I wouldn't have any Christmas trees to sell. So none. I got on the phone, none, zero, because I got on the phone. As soon as I got the letter, I knew I had the ace up my sleeve. And uh, so I called. I said, okay, I got this one in, the, in, a, in up my sleeve, but I'm going to call around. And I called every single Christmas tree supplier in Canada and every, sing, every single Christmas tree supplier in, in any state that straddled the Canadian border. And then I started going down, like, even further into Kansas, um, like, anywhere, almost to Florida, and couldn't find any and the messaging that I was receiving from all of them was oversold, oversold, oversold. So, you know, and again, that's it goes back to 2008, and people backed off on planting. It takes 12 years to get a tree to market, an average sized tree, and um, and then the the big box stores have certainly uh, had an effect because uh, you know it used to be quite boutiquey to get the real tree. And now the big box stores, you know, you, let's say you got a guy that's got 50,000 trees and, you know, he's doing, a, you know, 2,000 to one guy, 1,500 to another guy, 1,000 to another guy, two, like he's got all these different ones. You'll get a, uh, like a big box, so just come up and go, yeah, we'll take all 50,000. 
And right. uh, so it's, it's, you know, it, obviously it makes it much easier for him or the person logistically. So, and then of course, uh, it's kind of the perfect storm in the year of COVID and um, everybody is in trouble. Well, a lot of people aren't traveling. Most people aren't or aren't able to for whatever reason. And so they're instead of, spend, instead of spending, you know, six grand or eight grand and taking the kids or to, on a trip, um, we're going to spend a couple hundred bucks and get a real tree and do it upright and the whole nine yards. So really we saw demand outstrip supply last year. And based on what I'm hearing uh, this year, not for us, um, because what I ended up doing is um, I was so concerned. We actually uh, flew out to Montreal and met with our suppliers and uh, took them to the Montreal Canadiens hockey game and schmoozed the heck out of them and, made sure that we greased the wheel so that we got all of our trees. Because I'm hearing industry-wide, at least in Winnipeg, is there's a 40% reduction in uh, availability from uh, the two major suppliers to the Winnipeg market. So. <laughs> and I know Ray, and Ray's a friend, and you are you are the best, man. So you hopped a plane, you went to Montreal, you took them to a Habs game, uh, just to make sure. I mean, they were going to supply you, but just I'm going to make sure you did all that. So you're going to be okay for Christmas trees, but there's nothing else out there, and you're hearing that we might have 40 to 50% less real Christmas trees available this winter here in Winnipeg. Well, I'm hearing I'm hearing 40. percent There's two major suppliers that kind of that feed the market. We again we go direct to source, but there's two major suppliers, and what I'm hearing is um, is 40 percent reduction on availability. Now that might change as uh, as the crops come off. You know, guys will look at the frost damage and they'll they'll do their grading, and so that might change. But that's what I was hearing about 30 days ago. Again, we go direct to source, so we're okay, but. Again, the guys that I was dealing with, I've never dealt with them before. And if I go, you go online, you see the reviews, they're not great, right? You order like six, seven, seven, eight, eight, nine, nine, tens, and you might just get a truckload of four to fives. So, you know, when you dine with the devil, you don't get to choose what's for dinner. So I was like, okay, I'm flying out there. I'm going to press palms. You know, I'm going to shake some babies and kiss some hands and make sure <laughs> that these guys, allow, you know, maybe they'll send that to somebody else, but they'll send me my order in its entirety. And I think we made good inroads. And so yeah. I'm comfortable we're going to get our trees, but I'm not going to kid you. Um, it was a, a harrowing three days, and then I realized there was no – if I hadn't made that convers- that relationship, because they said they weren't taking on any more clients, but because I'd called them in uh, last December, they uh, they were willing to take me on. Otherwise, I wouldn't – I wasn't able – was not able to find any trees. So I would have mm-hmm. had none. Wow. Yeah. And and you yeah. know what, Ray? And here's here's the deal. We have been through a tough year and a half, right? Christmas is coming. Yeah. It's the holidays. Most people are vaccinated. They're going to be able to spend some time with people outside their immediate family. Um, and a Christmas tree is an important part of the holidays, right? If you celebrate Christmas, or especially a real Christmas tree. And so, you know, listen, at the end of the day, okay, I can't get a Christmas tree. Not the end of the world. But it is significant, though, after everything we've been through and the importance of a real Christmas tree to a lot of families out there. You deal with people every year. You see people come back every year. Yep. And then what we saw last year was influx of new people because they said, this, I'm making it special this year. We're getting a real tree. That was the message that I heard is this year we're getting it. We've never had a new tree or a real tree. This year we're doing it because we're going to do something special. So, again, that's what goes hand in hand with what you were just talking about. 
Yeah. Well, listen, Ray, I'm, I'm glad you've been able to secure some trees, and I hope everybody out there gets the real Christmas tree that they want. But it doesn't sound very, and it's early. You know, what are we, November 2nd? So it's early, but still, I, I thought it was important to get you on and, and let people know that uh, when they can get a real tree, if they see one, grab it, because there might not be as many available this season. I would, if it were me, what I would do is I would get a tree early and just keep it in your backyard. And then when you're ready to uh, put it up, then just cut a you know inch, inch and a half off the bottom and then uh, put it up. But I would grab it early because last year we were sold out by December 1st, which had never happened. And I don't see so, that changing. So you can do that, eh? If you buy a real oh, tree, yeah. just put it in your backyard. It'll be fine. And then before you put it in the stand and, and add water, just uh, chop off a little bit at the bottom, eh? Absolutely. Positively. Hmm. All right. Hey, uh, Ray, thanks a lot for coming on and explaining the situation. And, and like I said, man, you're the best. So good for you for going out to Montreal and, and making sure you had trees for your customers. Thanks I a lot. I had no choice, man. I was freaking <laughs> out. <laughs> I was like, man, okay, I, they have a bad rap. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll go and make them like fall in love with me and then they might screw the other guy. But it was... <laughs> okay, Ray DeWalk, thank day. you very yeah. much. Yeah, bye. Goodbye. Let me be the first to say Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ray Dubois, president of Ron Paul Garden Center. So there you go. Possibly a shortage of real Christmas trees. Uh, so if you see one, you might be paying more, but Ray says grab it. Stick it in your backyard. It'll be fine. And then just before Christmas or whenever you put up your Christmas tree, you chop off an inch and a half or two inches on the bottom and put it in the stand, add the water, and, and celebrate Christmas around the real Christmas tree.